type that is tangible that we uh, ingest and eat in the natural sense, but spiritual bread. And first and foremost, I'm grateful I have to give honor to Pastor Candace and Pastor Aaron and the worship team and the whole Freedom Valley family. Very grateful. Microphone here. So again, very grateful for the opportunity to come before you to bring a word and also to pray. I won't be before you long, but again, I, I, I bless Candace, bless Aaron for giving me an opportunity to grow, to know, to love, to be a part of a church that is selfless, that is vibrant, that is passionate, passionate for the things of Christ. And so I'm just very, very grateful. Again, we can't take that for granted. There's many people searching in the world for a place that they can call home, that they can belong, that they can feel loved in a non-judgment zone and Freedom Valley is that place so again I just want to encourage you if you're here for the first time understand that we welcome you you're here by no accident the Most High has ordered your feet here to come and just sit a little while sit at his feet I was pondering feet there's many stories there's many examples touched to him of his garment that means the young lady who had the issue of blood had to bend down towards his feet. There's a new life at the feet of Jesus. And so again, I'm sitting. I want to come and sit with the Most High. I do a lot of sitting, and I would encourage you to sit with him. Now, when we think of feet, before I go into prayer, I kind of was chuckling because many times the feet can be funky. The average person's feet can be funky. But the Most High, Jesus Christ, His feet has a pleasant fragrance. Fragrance of healing, a fragrance of love. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. So 
So right now, we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus and receive the word through his woman servant named Mrs. Candace Pringle. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. And again, feet are not my fetish, but if I'm going to sit at somebody's feet, I want that fragrance to be beautiful. Let us pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Father God, we come to you today. I thank you for the opportunity to sit and sup with you for a few minutes. I thank you for the opportunity to come among your people, to come with your people, to join with your people in the house of faith, that we may come together and worship you, Adonai. Worship Yahweh. It does not matter what's going on in the world. There's a lot of chaos and conflict, invasions and different things in Ukraine. But Father God, you still are a God that sits high and you look low. So I'm believing, Father God, you're going to move by your spirit, not just here in this fold, but for the people over in Ukraine. Father God, they just want to sit and sup with you, but they can't sit and sup next to bombs and invasions and different things. But Father God, even as you let me know that as Pharaoh was humble, that mighty Pharaoh was humble, you can humble anybody, anything, any government. So Father God, they have a right. We are praying as their sisters and brothers here, this side of Zion, to say, move by your spirit. Touch those, our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Although we have the luxury to sit unbothered at your feet today, I ask you to move and touch those in the Ukraine and around these United States that they may be able to sit and sup in peace. Because do know that when there's the bread, when there's a sitting and supping, when you're at the feet, miracles happen, signs happen, wonders happen. In the book of Acts, it said that they sat among each other. In simplicity, they gathered together. So Latina's here to sit with you in the name of Jesus Christ, to sit and sup. And Father God, I ask you for a special blessing, a special blessing of everyone of the sound of my voice. Move by your spirit in a mighty way. Wherever there is need, as we're sitting and breaking bread, let the miraculous, let signs and wonders, let you do what only you can do. Come forth that the world may know there is only one God, and his name is Adonai. He loves you. We welcome you. We need you. If it ain't this, it's going to be that. If it ain't that, it's going to be this. But Father God, you are God that changeth not. And in your stability, do we rest? Do we go forth? Champion, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father seated. Take your position, people. Sit and conquer. Sit and pray. Sit and move forward. An oxymoron. But you sit and you win because we win in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Latina. Amen. Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, we are at the comfort zone number five. Right? Five. All right, and I want to finish up this series today by addressing one of the most common frustrations with Christianity. And I, I think, honestly, this particular frustration really comes from a, a base underlying 
sense of selfishness that is our, our underlying sinful nature, but in the midst of frustration and pain and, and loss and grief and confusion, we just can't quite see that it comes from that place. Here's the question. <clears throat> the most common frustration or question with Christianity. What if God sees everything that I'm doing, that I'm, that I'm, I'm a good person, I'm serving him, I'm sacrificing, I'm striving, I'm trying to be good, and still bad things happen? How do we reconcile the fact that God is good, but bad things happen to me even when I'm following him? It's one of the most crucial questions for some people. We can't possibly understand a God who lets bad things happen. We have this idea that, that bad things are always bad things and that a perfect life would be one without struggles of any kind, right? The the book of Job asks these very questions. Now, a lot of us have an idea about the book of Job already, right? <clears throat> it is, it's, it's a very unique book in the Old Testament. It's actually one of the three books that are called wisdom literature, right? Psalms, Proverbs, and, and Job. It's, I'm sorry, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Wisdom literature. You almost can't quite study one without the other. I've actually linked some videos in the sermon notes today that will help explain the, the connection between these three books for you. Uh, but you have to get the full picture. It, it is a very, very long book, though. It is a dense book. The, the, the poetry just never seems to end. The guys in this book don't know how to say anything short. Thank you. Can you guys hear a buzzing with my mic or no? Okay, maybe it's just me. So it is a long book. It's a dense book. It is thick and, and full of poetic language. They cannot get to a point without like one million words. Okay, it is a dense book. It's tough to get through. But don't worry, I have picked out some pieces uh, just to help us get through this story today. We're going to read pieces of a lot of parts of this book. All right, are you ready? Ready to dig in? Go to Job 1, verse 1. We're going to start right at the beginning. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of... How do you say that? I like to say ooze, personally. It's just a personal preference. Say ooze. The land of ooze. <laughs> ah, the land of ooze. He was a blameless... He was blameless. A man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Just to explain a little here, what we see in this story is a man who always obeys God and always gets rewarded for it. There's a direct correlation between his riches and the fact that he is a good man. It is clear that he is a good man, right from verse 1 of this book. He's a very rich man. He has lots of kids, success everywhere he goes. He's a good man, a man of complete integrity, the Bible says. Complete integrity. The Bible doesn't have those words for almost anyone else throughout the Bible, okay? Complete integrity. Job was as close to perfect as humans can get, basically. And he lived a good life because of it. But success 
can put as many blinders on our attitudes as failure can. Okay, and because of all his success, he's got a lot of blinders. There are some assumptions that he's making about his life and the way that life works in general that this book confronts, okay? So meanwhile, while we see Job's life on earth, this is a unique book because we get to peek behind the curtain a little bit. Not only do we see what's going on down in Job's world, but in this book, we also get to see a little bit of God's perspective too, okay? So Job 1 Verse 6 says, One day the members of the heavenly court, heavenly court, came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, listen to this question, Have you noticed my servant, my servant Job? Have you noticed my servant Job? Anybody have a problem with the fact that God kind of recommends Job for this honor? What's going to happen next? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. God is saying this. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yeah, but Job has good reasons to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, the Lord said, you can test him, right? It does help me to remember sometimes about this interaction. Satan almost sort of has to wait in line to talk to God. Right? He just shows up with everybody else and he's got to wait. Just, I think we give this weird power to the enemy. Like, like it's the enemy's fault. Everything in our life that's, that's bad is the enemy's fault. He's not. He's powerful, don't get me wrong, but he's not as powerful as we make him out to be sometimes. He had to stand in line with everyone else and ask for permission to mess with Job. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. The story goes on. Job does lose everything. And this is what we most often remember about this book. He loses everything. His whole family, his herds, his property, his riches. He has nothing left but his health. And then (laughs) we see another scene in heaven, okay? Job 2, verse 3. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. He has maintained his integrity, even though you urge me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health. He'll surely curse you to your face. Satan isn't questioning Job's commitment here. He's questioning the motive for his commitment. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. I mean, of all the sicknesses, I feel like (laughs) boils. That would just be the most awful. And honestly, if you didn't have anger problems before, by this point in the book, are you a little... Angry, God, what is going on here? 
how could you let this happen? And not only let it happen, but almost recommend it. Verse 8 says, Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Anyone notice Satan left the wife? (laughs) It's a little suspicious, just saying. (laughs) But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? I mean, how do you... How are you at the point where you can say that after losing everything that Job has lost by this point in his life? That just speaks to his character right there. Can we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever had that attitude even once with God? I don't think I have. In the midst of my own suffering, and they are nothing compared to Job's, I am upset with God. I am saying, God, how could you? How dare you? I don't deserve this. Right? I'm angry with him. I want to be this person. I, I, I would like to get myself to a place where I, I react this way to bad things. And in fact, we see Job do two incredibly right things here. Instead of reacting the way that I might react, or you might react, he does two incredibly right things. Number one, he weeps. And number two, he worships. We often think of weeping as a negative response or a negative emotion or something we shouldn't be doing or something we don't want to be doing. But weeping is right here because God never called us to ignore reality. Faith does not deny reality. Faith just believes God in spite of reality. A not negative confession. There are some Christians that get all into our confession, our positive or negative confession, but, but it's not about that. It's, it, it's the acknowledgement of reality as it is, but also holding in the same hand the belief that God can change the reality that is. I, I am suffering right now. Things are awful, but I know a God who can turn that around. I know a God who can make this right for me, that can turn it out better for me, actually. It, it, it's not fun right now. But my God is bigger. Right? Yeah, we're not called as Christians to deny reality or, or to push down our feelings because they're not positive. Feelings buried alive don't die. There's no such thing as an unexpressed emotion. Deal with that thing. Get it out. Weep about it. Grieve about it. It's okay to be grieving. Express that emotion, especially in the presence of God. Latina talked about sitting in the presence of God, being open with him, honest with him. Have the honest conversation. I say it all the time, right? He wants that. Sit with him. Be real with him. And not everything is a curse or a faith statement. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Just sometimes things just are. It's just reality. Like people that talk about positive and negative confession like it's everything. I think I've finally figured out the reason that's wrong. It's almost like we're believing that it's a magical incantation. Like if we speak the right words, we can manipulate God to do what we want. Yes, words have power. Absolutely. But they have way more power over yourself than they do over God. 
Okay, we are when we're saying positive things, we're speaking them into existence. We're setting our hearts, not God's. Does that make sense? We're not out here manipulating God to do what we want. It's, it's just it's making it too simple to believe that everything is either positive or negative confession. There is such a thing as reality. And God is, is just. He is just, yes. And bad things do happen, yes. To good people sometimes, yes. But so how do we reconcile these two? Right? How, how do we make it okay? How, how do we make it make sense that God is just and also bad things happen to good people? Right, Job first, he weeps. He weeps, and it's okay for Job to weep, but we can't stay there forever. You don't get stuck in that place, because the next right thing that he does is he worships. He weeps, and then he gives it to God. He mourns, he feels those feelings, and then he gives them to, to God. The weeping led to his worshiping. God was in it with him. He invited him in to sit in it with him. Weeping sets your eyes on one thing, but worship sets your eyes on another thing. When he was worshiping, he was warring. You can't think of the, the greatness of God, how big he is, and also the enormity of your struggle at the same time. I've tried it. It's impossible. <laughs> when I think, when I'm dwelling on all the negative things, all the bad things, everything that is going wrong, and then I shift my brain to, no, but God is so much bigger, that thought overcomes the thought of how big my struggle is. In fact, Understanding that God is the provider, the deliverer, the comforter, the healer, that he knows all the stars by name, that he knows the amount of hairs on every one of our heads. Understanding just how big the scope of history has been and how he orders the earth and, and all of the living creatures that are inside of it and how it all seems to make sense to some degree. Like he did all that. How can my little problem seem trivial? God can fix it like that, Right? I can't hold them both in the same hand. My weeping has to lead to worshiping, and the worshiping overcomes the weeping. He did those two things right. But this is only the beginning of the book. Verse 11, three of Job's friends show up, and they, they have heard of this tragedy he has suffered, and they get together. They travel from their homes to come and comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. If anybody's looking for baby names, I'm pretty sure those are available. <clears throat> when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. It was that bad. He is, is almost a different person after all this loss. And doesn't loss make us a different person? It changes us. They're wailing loudly. They tear their robes. They threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. They sat on the ground with him for seven days. And nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Can you imagine sitting with somebody for a week, not saying a word? <laughs> now, in the scope of studying the book of Job, these friends get a bad rap. They don't say all the right things. In fact, they say some really wrong things, but honestly, they showed up. Right? They did show up. I mean, they sat with him in grief like not even his wife did, okay? She said, curse God and die already. They show up and they sit with him. They didn't have to do that. 
They were present. They listened for a while before they spoke. That's more than most of us do when somebody's going through something like this. We don't know how to act when somebody's going through something. We don't know how to just sit with people. It's called the ministry of presence, actually. Just by sitting with someone, you can minister. You don't have to have all the right words. This is, uh, you know, we've been through our share of tragedies and our marriage and, and just in life. And, and people would sometimes text me when we were going through the health issues that we went through a couple of years ago. And they would say, you know, I just, I thought you were probably overwhelmed with so many other people texting. I, I didn't want to reach out, you know, and bother you. And that's fine. I had a whole church around me, family around me. I did have lots of people reaching out, but not everyone does. And I just worry that sometimes we hold back out of our own insecurity because we don't know what to say. (laughs) We're afraid of saying the wrong thing, so we do nothing. Supporting each other, sometimes it's just being there. Just showing up. And these guys showed up. There's not much more you can say about their counsel, <laughs> the things that the advice that they give him. But they showed up. And after seven days of silent grieving, Job finally finds his voice. He begins to speak. He's processed a bit more since that first day. And now he has some thoughts. Okay. Job 3, verse 1. At last, Job spoke and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day of my birth be erased and the night that I was conceived. Let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it and the darkness terrify it. I mean, you can see the dense poetic language, but none of that poetry is a good thing. I mean, darkness and utter gloom, black clouds, right? You can see the depths of the emotion that he's feeling. And it goes on like this for a while. I'm only reading a couple verses, but there's a whole chapter of this. He says, I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. He goes on and on again. These guys can't say anything short. And then his friends begin to speak. And we see them go back and forth and back and forth. Again, dense poetic stuff. It's tough to get through. But really, what the friends are saying is that God is just. God is good. They have full faith that he is a just God. And it must be Job that has done something awful to deserve this pain. There's just no way this could be happening. If not, because God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't allow it. He protects the good and he brings punishment on the bad. It's just that simple. But is it that simple? We have the perspective of knowing what happened in heaven that conversation between God and Satan, right? So is it that simple? Job maintains the entire time throughout these long conversations that he is innocent. He's done nothing wrong that could possibly justify this, but he also maintains that God is just, right? Actually, he's sort of all over the place with his emotions, which is totally understandable. I'm all over the place with my emotions with way less going on, right? He's got a lot going on, and so... In the end of these conversations, he demands a response from God. He must know how God can possibly justify this. I am innocent, but I also know that you are good. Explain. How do I, how do I make this make sense? Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Because 
I don't know about you, but I've been there. I have said to God many times, God, how could you? Haven't I been a good little church girl all my life? Haven't I, haven't I earned some amount of blessing from you? Haven't I, I mean, I deserve better. I'm, I'm good. Let me just be good. And, and I think this comes from sometimes we, we do too much teaching in like Sunday school and, and church even uh, about behavior rather than relationship. We teach that you should be good, that you should not tell lies, that you should not steal, right? We, we teach behavior and not necessarily relationship. Fortunately, Job sort of has both. He knows that he has been innocent, but God is also good, and so he goes to God with this. He's got that relationship. He demands a response from God, and he is sort of entitled about it. But we're going to skip to Job 32, verse 2. Job's three friends are done. We've, we've, talk, we've said all the words in the language by now, surely. We're, thir- we're 32 chapters into this, y'all. 32 chapters they have been talking, but now they're finally done because he keeps insisting on his innocence. They cannot convince him that he has done something wrong here. Verse 2. But then Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite of the clan of Ram, he becomes angry. Elihu becomes angry. Now, Elihu is a unique character in this story. Uh, Elihu obviously has the gift of exhortation, which is a fancy word for um, rebuke with a, with a lot of love. <laughs> it's how we, as some people just have a gift for telling you what you need to hear. It is the truth, but you also feel loved by it, not judged by it. It is one of my husband's best, uh, highest spiritual gifts. He's very good at this. <laughs> I need him in my life because of it, because he will tell me the truth, but I also feel loved by him. This is Elihu, okay? He's going to tell you exactly how he feels, and your feelings are not his first priority. It's the truth. It's his first priority. So Elihu, he's angry, verse 2, because Job refused to admit that he had sinned, and God was in God was right in punishing him. He's also angry with Job's three friends, though, for they made God appear to be wrong by their inability to answer Job's arguments. Elihu has waited for the others to speak this entire 32 chapters. Because they were older than he, he respects them. But when he saw that they had no further reply, he spoke out angrily. Now, to get through this section of the book, you do sort of have to read between the lines of what he's saying. I picked out six assumptions that he confronts Job with. There's probably a lot more. If you read through this part of the book, he is confronting Job by saying, you're assuming six things, okay? We'll get there. Job 33, verse 12 is where I see the first assumption. But you are wrong, and I will tell you why. For God is greater than any human being. So why are you bringing a charge against him? Why say he does not respond to people's complaints? For God speaks again and again, though people don't recognize it. He speaks in dreams and visions of the night when deep sleep falls on people as they lie in their beds. He whispers in their ears and terrifies them with warnings. He makes them turn from wrongdoing. He keeps them from pride. He protects them from the grave, from crossing over the river of death. Right? He's saying, why are you saying he doesn't respond? He does respond. His first um, confrontation to Job is that he's assuming God isn't answering him. Maybe he has, but you weren't listening. You assume God isn't answering you. 
maybe you just weren't listening. I tell the story sometimes of my personal calling into ministry. I believe that I was actually, I now believe that I was called into ministry as a kid. I was actually at kids camp, just like our kids breakaway kids are right now. And I think at that point, God said, you're going to go into ministry. And I remember that, that moment clearly. My dad actually always says that most kids around 11 or 12 get this moment where they feel like they know what they're going to do from God if they're asking for it. And anyway, I, I was a senior in high school. I was like, God, tell me what I'm supposed to do with my life. I, I, I don't know why. I couldn't remember. I couldn't see that God had already called me. But at that point, God wouldn't tell me what I was going to do for the rest of my life. He actually withheld it in a couple of prophecies. He said, I am guiding you uniquely, which just made me mad because that wasn't an answer. (laughs) But maybe I was already, I already had my answer. I just didn't want to hear it. We do this a lot with God. God, just give me an answer. Just give me a sign. We talked about... um, What's his name? He starts with an E a couple of weeks ago where he put out the fleece. Oh, I, no. Gideon, it doesn't start with an E at all. Gideon, thank you. He puts out a fleece, right? And he says, God, make the fleece dry and the ground wet. God does it. And he's like, uh, yeah, but I need another one, right? He needs multiple signs. We do this with God. Oh, God, maybe that wasn't the answer I was looking for, can you maybe give me another one? We just can't wrap our heads around the fact that God does answer sometimes. We just weren't listening. Second assumption. Job 34, verse 33. Must God tailor his justice to your demands? See what I mean about not mincing words, this guy. Must God tailor his justice to your demands? You've rejected him. The choice is yours, not mine. Go ahead, share your wisdom with us. It's also full of sarcasm. (laughs) Did you know the Bible was sarcastic sometimes? Go ahead, share your wisdom with us. After all, bright people will tell me and wise people will hear me say, Job speaks out of ignorance. His words lack insight. Job, you deserve the maximum penalty for the wicked way you have talked. For you have added rebellion to your sin. You show no respect and you may you speak many angry words against God. He's not mincing words here. <laughs> He's being very clear. I, number two, assumption is you assume God is going against his own sense of justice when really you're putting your own justice on him. You can't trust him to handle it. So you're saying, I'm going to handle it. I think this is how you should handle it, God. And don't we do this all the time? We go to God with like, God, can you do this, this, and this for me? Because I know what's best. Rather than going to him with God, what do you think is best in this situation? Let me do that. Right? We put our own sense of justice on him. God, these people have wronged me and I want them punished in this particular way. If they're not, I'm going to be angry about it and I might just do it myself. God, where were you? Where were you? We talked about Lazarus this series too, right? God, where were you? Like if you had just been there, you would have prevented it. His sisters, Lazarus' sisters went to Jesus. If you had just been there, you could have prevented it. As if they knew what was best. As if Jesus showing up at the right time, what, four days later? That's not the right time. We know the right time you should have showed up. 
Jesus stayed where he was for two days, even though he knew Lazarus was so sick. Was that the right way to handle it? Of course, because Jesus did it. But the sisters didn't see it that way. We don't often see his way of doing things as the right way. Jesus said, actually his answer to them was, all this happened for God's glory. And so the disciples would really believe. That one event, by the way, Lazarus being raised from the dead is is the uh, sort of the event that catapulted Jesus' death sequence. The, the next few things happened in the way that they happened, the crucifixion, the, the trial, all of it, because of Lazarus. It was a big enough event. It was public enough that they finally said, enough is enough, we're going to go arrest him. It was the beginning of the end for Jesus' ministry. His death may not have happened without it. So when he did that, he was doing that. I say all the time, when God does something, he's doing something. And when he does nothing, like stay where he's at for two days and not come and help, he's doing something. Can we trust him enough to let him? You assume God is going against his own sense of justice when really you're putting your own justice on him. Number three, Job 35, verse one. Do you think it's right for you to claim I am righteous before God? Don't we do this all the time? I'm a good person. Do you think it's right for you to do that? For you also asked, what's in it for me? What's the use of living a righteous life? Look up into the sky and see the clouds high above you. If you sin, how does that affect God? Even if you sin again and again, what effect will it have on him? If you are good, is this some great gift to him? What could you possibly give him? No, your sin affects only people like yourself, and your good deeds affect only humans. People cry out when they are oppressed, and when they cry out, God does not answer because of their pride. But is it wrong to say God doesn't listen? To say the Almighty isn't concerned? A couple of key things here. Do you think it's right for you to claim I'm righteous before God, but in the same breath, say what's in it for me? Mm, Ouch. What's the use of living a righteous life? He's talking about pride here. He says, you assume you are without sin, but by doing so, you're committing the sin of pride. How can you say you're without sin? How can you say you're blameless? Truly. Because just by saying it, you deserve a punishment. (laughs) You are prideful. You're selfish in your righteousness because you're only doing it for what you're getting out of it. Are we obedient for obedience's sake or because of what we're getting out of it? We talk about tithing all the time, like... (sighs) Give your whole tithe. Test me in this and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you won't have room enough for it. That's Malachi 3.10, right? We, we claim these verses because of the blessings that we get. And we say, you should tithe because God will bless you. You should tithe because he says to. Yes, he will throw open the floodgates of heaven. He will bless you. But is it righteousness to only obey because of what you get out of it? Or is it righteousness to just trust God? Joseph in the Bible is a great example of this. He didn't take this attitude. He is a 
story is long. We see a lifelong story for Joseph. He didn't look at his blessings as for Joseph because of Joseph. He looked at his blessings as from God for people. You can't hold righteousness and selfishness in the same hand. It is one or the other. And I think a lot of us as Christians, we get to this place where we're sitting back on our big comfy couch. We, we cozy into it, all the couch of blessings, of all the things that God has done for us. And we start to think on that cozy couch that we deserve that couch. That it's ours. We're entitled to it. And so we wouldn't share that couch with anyone else because they're not entitled to it. They haven't done all the things that we did to deserve the spot on that couch, right? They got to go and be righteous themselves. But the, the blessings aren't for Candace because of Candace. They're from God for others. I am meant to share the overflow of blessings that God gives when I tithe, not hoard them all to myself. Can't hold righteousness and selfishness in the same hand. You assume you're without sin, but by doing so, you commit the sin of pride. Number four. Job 35, verse 14. You say you can't see him, but he will bring justice if you will only wait. You say he does not respond to sinners with anger and is not greatly concerned about wickedness, but you're talking nonsense, Job. You've spoken like a fool. I love Elihu. <laughs> You've spoken like a fool. You're talking nonsense, dude. He will bring justice if you only wait. The fourth assumption is you assume that because he hasn't answered so far, he isn't going to. When really, you're just not being patient. Don't we always wish God would respond in our timing? God, like yesterday, I needed an answer on this. Can you like fix it already? I'm tired. I'm sick. I'm broken. I'm broke. Whatever it is. I, God, I can't live like this anymore. Are you even there? Maybe we're just not being patient. I am not patient with God more often than I am patient with God. <laughs> I demand answers now, but is it right for me to do so? Or is his timing always the best timing? Can God be late? Can God be early? <laughs> or is he always on time? Number five, Job 36, verse 13. For the godless are full of resentment. Even when he punishes them, they refuse to cry out to him for help. They die when they are young after wasting their lives in immoral living. But by means of their suffering, he rescues those who suffer. Let's look at that sentence for a second. By means of their suffering, he rescues those who suffer. For he gets their attention through adversity. Verse 16 is just as poignant. God is leading you away from danger, Job. Does that feel true in this moment? He's sitting in the ashes, remember? Scraping his boils with a broken piece of pottery after losing his entire family except his wife. And all his riches, all his land, everything's gone. Does it feel true that God's leading him away from danger? 
God is leading you away from danger, Job, to a place free from distress. He's setting your table with the best food, but you are obsessed with whatever, with whether the godless will be judged. Don't worry, judgment and justice will be upheld, but watch out or you may be seduced by wealth. Don't let yourself be bribed into sin. Be on guard. Turn your back from evil, for God sent this suffering to keep you from a life of evil. Here we finally get to the root of the answer. You assume suffering is a punishment. But what if it's a warning? What if it was sent to save you in the long run? Now we're so short-sighted as humans. And when we see the universe, we only see cause and effect. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? We forget that God doesn't exist within our time constraints. He doesn't exist within the laws of, of nature. He created the laws of nature. He exists outside of them. So maybe he sees something coming and is using the accuser to train you now so that when it comes, you're ready. Stop putting God in a box. He's so much bigger than that. He is, what's the last verse? Be on guard, turn your back from evil. For God sent this suffering to keep you from a life of evil. What if your suffering isn't a punishment? It's a warning. It's a training ground for what's to come. What if it is your very salvation? Now, some people have trouble with the fact that God took people here. Like, it can't just be a warning because God killed, I mean, he allowed people to be killed. His sons, daughters, right? But it also says in the book of Job that Job offered sacrifices for his kids after they had wild, drunken, week-long parties. They were not people of complete integrity like Job. And maybe they would have ushered in a age of evil that Job's legacy didn't deserve. Maybe God was giving Job a second chance to raise kids that would worship God and not their own selfishness. He's almost giving Job a do-over here. Maybe this suffering is meant to save you from evil. Have you, have you ever thought of that, Job? Maybe it's not a punishment at all. You assume suffering is a punishment, but what if it's a warning? And number six, Job 36, verse 26. Look, God is greater than we can understand. His years cannot be counted. He draws up the water vapor and then distills it into rain. The rain pours down from the clouds and everyone benefits. Who can understand the spreading of the clouds and the thunder that rolls from heaven? It goes on like this for a while about the weather. Like, even if you could understand it, you couldn't control it. You assume you should understand everything about God. But who possibly could ever who could understand everything about God? You think you have it all figured out, Job. You don't. The, for me, myself, I, I think I do this a lot. Like I, I think that I understand the way that God works and then God presents me with another problem. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, maybe I, maybe I don't quite. <laughs> like, like the further that I get into understanding the Bible, the more that I realize I don't understand. I have been studying this book for as long as I can remember. 
I'm, multiple times I've been through it. I, I Not just the book of Job, but the Bible. I mean, I study it all the time and I get constant new revelations from it. This time through Job, for example, I thought I had it all figured out because I preached this multiple times and genu- generally when I preach something, I like research it. You know what I mean? I feel like I got it down. Again, all new fresh revelations from this book. I... <laughs> So many of them, I couldn't fit them all into the sermon. I, I could talk about the book of Job all week, like all week. But I get all new revelations from it every single time because God is so much bigger than we could possibly understand. Truth is layered. His truth is so layered. It is deep, tense. It is full of life, full of it. Lies are shallow. Truth is deep. God's truth is layered. And I think it's that way for a reason. I think we have to dig for the answers sometimes. We don't find the truth just lying around on the surface. We got to dig for it. God asks us to put in some work, actually. So there's, there's six assumptions here Job is making about God and the way that God's world works. I'm pretty sure I've made every single one of them in my relationship with him, too. This is why we have the gift of exhortation still working within the church today. We all need an Elihu in our lives. Somebody to confront us with truth a little bit. Somebody to speak truth into our lives and see things from a different perspective. Somebody willing to call us out when we're just being defensive and whiny little brats. Because we do that a lot. And we're too busy trying to defend ourselves that we can't see the egregious assumptions we're making about God. And because of those assumptions, we get angry at God. And we sit back on our comfy couch. We're comfortable in our assumptions, in our pride, in our blessings. How could you, God? Could you allow this to happen? How could you take my couch? God is the God of intentionality. His actions are never an end unto themselves. They're always a means to an end. When he does something, he is doing something. When he does nothing, he is doing something. This concept is easy to embrace when God is acting in ways that we prefer, when we are sitting on the comfy couch of blessings. It is not so easy to embrace when God's behaving in ways we do not understand. And I think this is why we get a little bit of God's perspective in this book. Because without it, we might draw the wrong conclusions. We might oversimplify this. Maybe we see God recommending someone for grief and sorrow and trouble, but he's actually recommending somebody for a restart, for a do-over, for extra blessing in the end, somebody who can handle the blessing, somebody who knows the value of it. Maybe he wants to process your character in such a way that you'll be ready for the blessing. Maybe you're being tested, not because you're weak, but because you're strong. Even when God allows Job to go through something, he puts limitations on it. He never allows what he does not intend to use. After Elihu points out some of these assumptions Job's, Job makes, we finally see God's response. I'm always, attempted, I'm always tempted to say finally, because it feels really late to me. But God doesn't do late, right? He doesn't do early. He's right on time. And so we see God's response at the end of this book. 
I think there's something to the fact actually now that God waited this long to speak to Job. He addresses his issues after he's worked it through with some friends for a while, after he's been corrected a little while too. Look, some Christians are against like therapy and and mental health stuff because isn't God enough? (laughs) Isn't God enough? Won't he fix what's going on? But look, God created us to be in community. He created us to need each other. We need each other too. God said it's not good for man to be alone. We need each other. He set us up that way. So God answers Job after his friends do, after Elihu opens up Job's mind to the possibility that he could be wrong about a few things. And I think that's significant. We, we looked also at this story, the story of Jonah in this series, right? Jonah felt entitled to his comfort zone his anger, his pride. We don't see him have a change of heart. We don't know if he did, but Job, we see the end of this story. He did have a change of heart. He's an overall good guy making some wrong assumptions about God. And even an overall good guy can get very off track when disaster strikes, okay? In the end, God did answer Job, and I want you to hear some of this. Job 38, verse one, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man. I love that God uses this language. Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Again, God can get snarky. He uses some sarcasm here. He's done it with me too, so I know. Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said this far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. God goes on like this for two chapters. getting into detail about specific animals like the donkey, the horse, the wild ox, the ostrich. He talks about their untamable nature. God isn't even talking about Job. He's not talking about Job's issues in particular. He's not answering his questions directly. He's making a point. These animals, these creatures, the way that he's ordered the the world, he governs them all. God does that not Job. God is big. Job maybe felt like he governed the world because of how rich and comfortable he was. What, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 donkeys, something like that, crazy amount. Like he probably felt like he owned the world. God's saying, you own nothing, you puny little brat. You only govern this small piece of land right here, Job. The world is so much bigger. Don't you go thinking you're too big for your britches, right? You don't know everything. You don't see everything. I do. Job 40, then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? (laughs) Come at me, bro. No, he didn't say that. Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? I love that. Do you have the answers? And listen to Job's response. After 40 chapters of talking, there's so much talking in this book. After 40 chapters, he says like two sentences, maybe three. I am nothing. 
how could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Finally. Finally, he has nothing more to say. What could possibly be the right response other than this? After God lays out everything that he is in charge of, everything that he oversees, Job's like, I'm going to shut my mouth now. I'm going to literally put my hand over my mouth and I'm going to shut it. I, I see it now. You're so big. I misjudged my own importance. God doesn't actually stop there though. <laughs> Job may stop. God doesn't stop. In fact, I almost never see him, God, just humble someone in the word. He doesn't just ruin their lives and leave them, right? He also redirects their thinking. And so God goes on. Verse six, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you're right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right, put on your glory and splendor, your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then even I would praise you for your own strength would save you. You ever heard God speak like this? It is somehow mind-blowing to hear him speak like this. Even I would praise you if you could do all that. Sarcastic with Job. Then God goes on to emphasize two of his creations, and I promise we're getting towards the end of this, okay? He goes on to emphasize two of his own creations, the behemoth and the leviathan. Do, do you know what either of those look like? <laughs> there, I've actually looked these up, I've researched them a bit. There is some difference of opinion on what these actually are. They could be a hippo or a rhino, a crocodile maybe. They could be even mythological creatures that didn't actually exist. God was just making a symbol of. I tend to think they were actual creatures. God gets way too specific about what they are and what they can do. He describes their broad shoulders and their teeth. He, he, he emphasizes, though, the dangerous parts of them. God is talking about teeth and strength, how they are untamable, right? It, he emphasizes how they are dangerous. And either way, I think the meaning is clear. These are two symbols of disorder and danger in God's world. Items that he created to be just who they are. They're not evil, but they're also not safe. The world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect and it's not safe. God created order and beauty and rhythms, but this world is also wild and it's dangerous. Ever since sin entered the world, it is wild and dangerous and it is no longer designed to prevent suffering. That is the point God is making here. Job's three friends tried to simplify the world. They tried to put God in a box. They wanted God to fit in their little box. They wanted things to be black and white, bad and good, simple and easy, nothing too complex that they would have to work to understand. They wanted God to reward their good behavior and anything bad must be punishment. And if they could understand it, then maybe they could control it. Maybe they could stay comfortable, rich, and healthy. Right? 
I have been calling it the cult of comfort. Comfort was their God, not Jehovah God. A karma, essentially. Karma says whatever we put into the world will come back to us. It's an oversimplification. Yes, sometimes that happens, but God can also see the future. What if the pain that you're in right now is to develop you for the future and has nothing to do with your past? Or what, what if God was speaking to you in the past about what was coming and you just didn't prepare for it? Like what if God has a higher perspective than you? We, we think we have control over whether the world mistreats us or not. We don't. We think we have control over whether we're successful or not. We really don't. We, we do have control over whether God is with us or not. Lead into that. Even when it's hard, even when you've lost everything, even when it's your own actions and issues that have gotten you here. Because the reality is we don't understand it all. We never could, actually. I don't. I stopped demanding easy answers from God. Even God didn't put himself in a box. When Moses went to God and said, who do I tell them sent me? Who are you? God said, I am. He left the rest of that blank. I am. Because I am the provider when you need a provider. I am the comforter when you need a comforter. I am the healer when you need a healer. He continued to reveal himself to Moses over almost the next century. And he was who Moses needed him to be. Not necessarily always who he wanted him to be, who he needed him to be in the moment that he needed it. He couldn't possibly explain himself in a word. I am is your answer. That's all you need. For, for a few days this week, this one question bothered me a lot. Would I be willing to lose everything that currently defines me if God asked me to. Like Joe. Would I be willing to lose everything I know now if I knew there was double on the other side? <laughs> I think most Christians, most people in general, I think we would choose to stay comfortable. We'd say, God, I don't want to risk it. I don't want to risk losing what I have now. I'm going to cling to comfort because I don't quite trust you with everything. This, this cult of comfort is the pseudo-Christian religion based around a God who rewards good behavior always. So any bad things might just be seen as a tax from the enemy or a reason to be angry with God, but that's simply not God. Bad things are not always bad things in God's kingdom. God is sovereign, not simple. He protects you. He keeps you. He upholds you with his righteous right hand, and all of that is true. But sometimes he also tests you, breaks you, develops you. Sometimes he asks you to follow your leader and crawl up onto a cross for the sake of others. It's something that actually has nothing to do with you. Or go to a city of people you hate and preach repentance to them, like Jonah. 
or endure slavery and prison and mistreatment so that you can save the world from starvation later in life like Joseph. Sometimes he asks you for your trust and he calls you out on the absurdity of thinking you deserve an explanation from the almighty creator of heaven and earth. We don't deserve answers, but he does give them. Have that honest conversation. He wants to talk to you about whatever it is that you are struggling with right now. But don't make Job's mistake and assume you know what you're talking about. Job assumed the comfort he had enjoyed was because of him. But in the end, he said, I see it now. You're sovereign. And I had no right to be angry that you took something I did nothing to deserve. Instead of asking God for nothing but safety and protection, maybe we should be asking him for deeper revelations of who he is. And then when trials come, instead of getting angry, we'll see them for what they are, learning opportunities. God, just like Job and his friends, I think I've talked enough. It's time for you to speak. God, speak to hearts and minds today. Confront assumptions that we have been making about you that are just wrong. Convict us. Come into our hearts and minds. Change our thought processes that need change. Change our behavior that needs change. But really from the inside out, God, we invite you in to do that. We surrender completely and totally to you because we see it now. You are big. Maybe we've been misjudging our own importance lately. Maybe we need to come to you with with an open heart, a humble heart. Not angry, assuming we know it all but understanding that you actually know us better than we know ourselves. You see the the much, much bigger picture. And God, we just ask you to use us. It's a bold, scary, dangerous prayer, but I'm openly praying it. Use me. Use me. Even when it has nothing to do with me, use me for the sake of others. Let me follow Jesus' example and crawl up on that cross for the sake of this world. I, I want to be willing, God. Just like a man who came to Jesus begging for healing, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I am willing, help my unwillingness. Help me get over my own selfishness and pride and just submit totally and completely to your will. Even if that's so far out of my comfort zone, it's terrifying. Heads bowed and eyes still closed. I want to give you the opportunity today before we leave from here to accept Jesus in your life. Maybe you've never done that before and I'm not going to keep talking you into it. Just going to simply ask for a hand raise right now. Raise your hand. I want to receive Jesus. This isn't for our sake. This is for you to mark this point in your life. I am making a decision. I'm going to follow Jesus. I am all in. Not one foot out the door anymore. It's all in. 
Raise your hand if that's you. If you're online watching, you can text the number on the screen or type I'm in in the comments. We'd love to help you with that decision. Maybe today you're just saying, you know what? I just need to lay down the pride. I see it now. I've been prideful. I've been angry. I've been assuming all the wrong things about God. Would you just raise your hand? I'd just like to pray for you before we go from here today. Father, thank you for each and every hand raised. God, I pray that we would go into our week this week just understanding who you are in a whole new way. Understanding that you are big. Challenge our comfort zones, God. Use us in ways you never have before. Let us lay down our pride. Humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Are you willing to give Pastor Candace a round of applause for that good sermon? Sometimes the hard ones are the ones that work in us the most. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Who knows the purposes and mind of the Lord that we can instruct them? So that is a time when things just don't make sense. And we just need to kneel before him and say, Father God, I need your help. I need your understanding. And he says he'll give it to you. Because earlier in that chapter, Paul says the Holy Spirit, who knows the heart of God, knows God, dwells in us. And we can ask him to know what's going on. Doesn't mean that answers always come quick, quickly, but we can ask for understanding. Amen? That was a good sermon. All right. Would you stand with me? Let's close. They are getting set up for the 20-second takeaway. There was a lot of meat in there, so you can uh, line up and share 20 seconds, all we need, of what God spoke in your heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the Lord God. We just humbly bow before you, recognizing that we don't know. You do. And we don't understand that we will simply kneel and say, we trust you. Hardest thing, Father, hardest thing for us. That we trust you when we can't see. We can't see ahead. We can't see the future. We can't see the answer. That you know, we declare that you are good, you are God, and that you love us, and that we can rest in you for your strength and grace. Thank you, Lord. We trust you this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.